In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today I'm joined by Tamar Hallerman, the AJC's Washington correspondent, who is back from a restful vacation that might not have been on the best timing. I think the worst time vacation of my entire life. <laughs> and tell, tell us where you went and what happened while you were, while you were gone. <laughs> I was hiking a mountain in a very remote part of Yosemite Park on Wednesday morning, just minding my own business, happily trudging my way up the mountain. And I must have gotten cell reception for a hot second because I got about 20 text messages immediately saying, oh my gosh, Johnny Isaacson. But I didn't have enough internet reception to actually be able to pull up the email or to communicate with any of you guys. It was absolutely horrible. <laughs> and I was obsessed with it all day. And you're a great colleague for filling in for me, Greg. <laughs> the good news for you is that it obviously did not ruin your vacation because you had a blast on vacation. And we got to squeeze in conversations whenever you you did have cell reception so we could keep you apprised. And you had already done so much good work on on just on who Senator Isaac is and his legacy that, that you, all the way from Yosemite, nabbed a, a byline and a big part of the story that day. And of course, you'll be writing about all the after effects um, still to come. Oh, man. You know, I might have missed the biggest news day of my young career, but I am lucky enough that you kind of hit the ground running with it. And within hours, you had a massive list of potential candidates. Well, so let's get right into some of those potential candidates, because uh, we had a story that ran in the AJC a couple of days ago about all the, uh, well, on the surface, very few candidates are talking about it. They don't want to look disrespectful. They don't want to look too eager, whatever the reason may be. On the surface, it seems like you know the 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 race to replace Isaacson is kind of is 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 petrified is 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 ground to a halt. But behind the scenes, there's, it's anything but. There's there's all sorts of phone calls, soul searching conversations, strategy sessions. You name it, it's happening behind the scenes. And uh, let's start with Governor Kemp because um, this race, in in, th in this context, he's got to appoint someone who not only he might share the ballot with in 2022. And we'll have to run for election in 2020, but also might have to carry the ballot alone in 2021. That's when a runoff would be. If no one gets a majority of the vote in November 20th, I mean, in November 2020 for Johnny Isaacson's seat, then you're going to have a head-to-head -head runoff with the second place finisher in January 5th, 2021. And that's a big part of Brian Kemp's calculations. 
I mean, let's start first of all with what a surprise this news was to everyone, including yeah. to, to Governor Kemp. You know, you reported that he didn't know about it until about 15, 20 minutes before the announcement came. And and not only was the timing a surprise, but you know, we had a hurricane that was going through the yeah. Atlantic, you know, about to, you know, about to hit Georgia. So he really did not have a lot of time to react to this. There was not some sort of predetermined deal ahead yeah. of time with Senator Isaacson for a chosen successor. So really he has kind of a, a blank slate. And and like you mentioned, the timing, especially the potential that this could go into a runoff in January 2021, it's entirely possible that control of the Senate could be kind of hanging in the balance. So if that's the only race in town, that could mean a ton of national money and attention going into this race. So if you're Brian Kemp, you, you really have to be careful because you need somebody who, first of all, can handle all of that and doesn't have too much baggage and knows what they're doing knows what they're doing, knows the fundraising, but then that person will immediately have to turn around in 2022, run again and share the ballot with Brian Kemp. And let's dig into the the notion um, of, a, of there was no deal struck. And you've seen this in some other states and other situations where someone, a senator, decides to step down and has doesn't usually admit it, but has quietly pre prearranged a deal with the governor who might appoint a successor about someone who's palatable to both sides. You know, I'll step down early, but only if you pick from these three people. Well, we're paid to be skeptics. We're paid to be cynical. Um, but, but I, everyone who I've talked to and everyone probably who you've talked to, um, have come up with the same, same sort of sentiment that there was no deal. This took, Kemp by surprise, just like it took pretty much everyone except for a very small group of, of people within Senator Isaacson's inner circle by surprise. And that meant that when we say Kemp is starting from square one, he really was. There was always a possibility that Senator Isaacson could step down. So there was always, you know, an idea of potential contenders. So, you know, it's not like there were, there were, there was no one in, in the governor's mind, but at the same time, he didn't have any time to prepare for this. He had he had about a thirty or forty more minutes than the rest of the Georgia public did, um, from what I hear, uh, to find out about this news. And Senator Isaacson has said in an interview with the AJC basically that that he's he he's not trying to determine or trying to shape this decision in any way. That he'll give Governor Kemp his advice and his counsel, but it's up to Governor Kemp. He won the election; it's his right to to appoint. Yeah, exactly. There were always, there have long been rumors about Johnny Isaacson's health. You know, he's had Parkinson's disease since 2013. There had long been rumors in political circles about him stepping down and giving the governor, you know, Governor Deal back then, the opportunity for an appointment. Those were not true. You know, I was told he he never once considered really stepping down until just now. But there are always rumors about that. There are always people wanting, jockeying, you know, if this were to happen, we want to be the person. Um, but but like you mentioned, Johnny mentioned he does not, you know, want to to come forward proactively unless the governor asks him. I mean, there are some kind of obvious Johnny Isaacson Republicans who Kemp could choose to to fill the void. But but I think it's really a question of, of the kind of strategy he wants to take going into 2020. Um, you know, we've talked about how he, he sort of has two paths, right? He can choose to, to pick somebody who's very conservative, who can excite the base, particularly in the more rural parts of the stage, if he of the state, if he thinks that's what will help carry Republicans into 
2020 and 2022, or he could go for a more suburban pick, perhaps, uh, you know, somebody who's a woman or a minority who can help attract middle of the road folks who maybe were starting to look toward the Democrats. So he has a big decision to make. And, and a name that we, we should talk about early on, kind of the most obvious, if you want to go for a Johnny Isaacson Republican, Chris Carr, a member of, of Brian Kemp's administration, the attorney general who was long Johnny Isaacson's top aide and who was kind of seen as his natural political successor in all of this. But he really has not been campaigning for this position as far as we know. He's done, um, from everyone I've told, I've talked to, um, from folks close to him and, and just folks close to the governor and, and people very deep in Republican circles, he's done nothing to promote himself, to campaign for this. Um, and, and frankly, one of the reasons why is he's not seen as, as one of the top contenders for this, even is as much, as much as it, as much as he has a stake on this because he's so close to Senator Isaacson, his wife is Senator Isaacson's chief of staff. Uh, he's, he's one elected office in Georgia statewide, um, as, as the state attorney general, um, uh, he, for, for, for various reasons, he's not seen as, as one of governor's top picks, although I'm sure he will get vetted. And let's be clear too. It's so early. Governor Kemp and his aides insist there's no shortlist yet. They haven't really even started vetting yet because they were so consumed with Hurricane Dorian this past week. And again, it's one of the, we're paid to be skeptical and cynics, but it is something I, I, I know they've done early work, you know, looking at folks and I know they've, they've kicked around a lot of names, but um, I believe them when they, when they say that, that there's no shortlist that they've devised yet. There's rumors floating everywhere though. I've heard people say judges in South Georgia and, and prosecutors in West Georgia and old college pals of the governor are on shortlists. And this is kind of, kind of time for silly season where everyone wants to be mentioned, county commissioners, you know, all sorts of people want to be mentioned. But this is going to be the most, the, the most scrutinized, most expensive race in state history, I bet, when it's done. Um, if not for the fact that even if Senate control does not hinge on this race, it's going to be a stand. It's probably going to be a standalone race in January 2021, when the entire nation's political spotlight will shift to Georgia, and it will be, if not the only one of the only races in the country at that time. So think about the sixth district race in 2017, the special election, where we had the entire media world down here scrutinizing John Ossoff and Karen Handel. Well, think of that times ten with a Senate race in the in the offing, which is a much more powerful post, and maybe. If maybe control the Senate or or at least a view that this could be a referendum on whatever happened in the presidential election a few months earlier. Exactly. The, the losing party could be coming back for revenge, yeah. as we kind of saw with the 2017 exactly. special election. Democrats came up short, but you could see whoever loses really kind of putting all the resources into this race just to prove to America, to prove to the world that they're still mighty. And you've seen Democrats, of course, for the last few years, talk about how Georgia is turning and how it's this big battleground. We've already seen this parade of presidential contenders come down to the state this kind of plays right into that. It's why it's not it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility, but it's very unlikely that the governor will, will pluck someone who's untested, um, a local official, you know, may, maybe a, a, a very good conservative and a, a very active party activist, but someone who, under the intense intense spotlight that they're going to about to hit, hit for the next eighteen months, sixteen months, whatever it might be, um, might wilt under the pressure. And that's why this this pick is so important. And the perceived front runner right now is someone you're very familiar with. Um, and again, we use the perceived very, very guardedly because there is no shortlist. There, there, there is no um, 
you know, there is no consensus yet. The governor hasn't come to his decision yet, but pretty much every Republican you talk to has this, this person in his, in his or her list of top three potential candidates. And that would be Congressman Doug Collins. Exactly. He came to Congress only in 2013. He really hasn't been up here much long, but he's had this very rapid rise to the top. He's now the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee, which is ground zero of the impeachment debate and over all sorts of White House investigations. And he really has become this pit bull for the, for the president in this role. You saw his kind of starring role in the Mueller hearings a little bit earlier this summer. And, and he really has carved a name out for himself, as well as a relationship with the president, which we learned in last year's governor's race between Casey Cagle and Brian Kemp, having that relationship makes a huge difference. And we saw as recently as the other day, the president tweeting a reply to Doug Collins. And you're starting to hear about a lot of folks not only appealing to Brian Kemp for this appointment, but also reportedly going straight to the president. And he really, because of his deep popularity with the Republican base, his opinion matters a lot here. Look, a single tweet from the president could unravel whoever Governor Kemp picks. So clearly, I think it's safe to say the president will have some sort of input. He might not say Doug is the guy; it has to be Doug, um, but he could certainly say, "I really like these three guys, these three, these three potential candidates, and and I hope you pick one of the three because all three of them would be great for me." And look, they're going to be sharing the ballot with Trump in in twenty twenty, so yep. it's going to be important to him. Trump's super PAC, which has nothing to do with his campaign, but you know they they've shortlisted Georgia. It's one of six states where they're going to be put, putting a ton of resources, you know, into. So we know Trump's folks and allies are are paying very close attention to Georgia, and and you know we were talking a little bit earlier about how Kemp needs to kind of decide if he's going to go for more of a urban strategy or kind of a rural base turnout. And Collins especially plays to that rural base. He's from the most conservative district east of the Mississippi. It's a Northeast Georgia district. He's a proven really good fundraiser. Um, obviously, he's a national name now and is only getting more attention. So I think he would be a very formidable candidate if, if Kemp decides to go that route. And the format of this election is really important because it's not a primary election. The, 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 um, Democrats and Republicans will all be on the same ballot in November for what is called a jungle, a jungle special election. Um, so it's important. Two things really play into factor here. The first is whoever Kemp picks has to be able to scare off another Republican, another viable Republican option. There might be 10 Republicans who run no matter what, but whoever he picks has to be able to scare off any, someone, any, any credible threat. Um, because if, because if there's a credible Republican out there who decides to run against Kemp's appointment, then that could cost Republicans their chance at, 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 a, at a majority vote. That, that could cost them the chance at avoiding a runoff. Um, and maybe, potentially, if it's really strong um, threat, then you know, they could dilute the vote so much that two Democrats end up in a runoff. Who, that, that's very, very unlikely to happen. But that's why whoever Kemp picks if, if has to be um, seen as a strong conservative or, and to be able to fend off challengers. And secondly, someone like Doug Collins, Collins district accounts for about 35 to 40% of all primary Republican voters in the state. It doesn't matter because there, there won't be a primary vote, but it does, it, that could play in the factor in the January 2021 runoff when whoever the candidate is has to stand alone and has to be able to energize voters to come back out once again after a presidential election and come back out and cast another ballot in a race that will be getting a lot of attention, but but you know, voters could be feeling fatigued by then. So but we should also note Doug Collins is not the only 
only candidate that Kemp will look at by far, especially if he looks at that route trying to energize the base. There are many, many other Republican elected office holders and others who Kemp could decide would would be amply energizing and it would go that route, pleasing the president, pleasing Trump's voters, pleasing Purdue supporters, and helping to get out the Republican base vote. In November. Yeah, exactly. You have several members of, of the delegation, um, colleagues of, of Doug Collins. You have Tom Graves, another North Georgia congressman. You have Drew Ferguson, who's a relative newcomer. We've also heard some kind of unconventional names, people from the business community um, who, who might not have been traditional candidates. But if Kemp is looking to go outside the box, which he has for some of his other statewide appointments, this could be a really interesting route for him to take. Yeah. And one name that keeps on, well, a couple names that keep coming up for that route, which is you know, trying to appeal more to pro- broaden the party's appeal to more minorities, to more women, especially in the suburbs where Republicans have just gotten demolished the last two elections. Um, one is Kelly Loeffler. She is a businesswoman, a co-owner of the WNBA Dream Team. Um, and uh, her her husband and her helped run the Intercontinental Exchange. They, they were the founders of it. She runs a, a subsidiary of it now called BACT or Bacht, I don't know how you exactly pronounce it, but um, she was someone who flirted with a, a run for Senate way back in 2014. So she's seen as a viable contender, and she could also help self, uh, assume, we assume she, she could help self-finance her campaign. And another name that keeps on popping up, and everyone I've talked to, is BJ Pack. He is the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Georgia. That means he's the top prosecutor in North Georgia in Atlanta. And he's a former state legislator from Gwinnett County of Korean descent. He was the first Korean American legislator in in state history in the state house, and he would be the first Asian American senator in Georgia history. Um, and he is he is likely to be vetted too. Exactly. And and he's had some really high profile cases since becoming U.S. Mm-hmm. attorney. He was involved um, in some of the Equifax. Um, litigation after the after the hack. Um, he also did, a, I think, some with the opioid crisis as well, if I remember correctly. Well, and the biggest is Atlanta corruption, right? He's been he's been the the main uh, the main prosecutor leading leading the entire investigation, the entire federal probe into Atlanta City Hall corruption. Exactly, and so that because he's kind of his role lately has been less partisan, it makes Democrats a little bit you know it's, it's harder for them to attack him. Um, one thing that that's very interesting to me, we we talked about how this is a jungle primary, and you're not you're not going to get a partisan primary like you would in a regular congressional mm-hmm. race. So on the one hand, it does incentivize more of your moderates, folks who maybe wouldn't exactly excite a, a primary voter. Yeah, you're right. It, it suddenly opens a path for for Democrats who thought they would get clobbered in a in a primary centrists um you know maybe Michelle Nunn who's clearly interested in it maybe Jason Carter both of them were their party's nominees in 2014 but it was a different party back then it was a different time that was a time where 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 democrats ran essentially they, they they ran more moderate campaigns. Uh, they they didn't have the same stances on gun control or on climate change or on criminal justice reforms the Democrats today today have. And I'm sure their their stances have shifted since then too. But because of that, it would have been really hard for either of them to run in a conventional primary. Both of them are said to be very seriously considering running in the Isaacson race, which would be a, 
a broader part of the electorate. They wouldn't have to worry about winning that, winning over those those base primary voters, a smaller crowd of more fervent voters. Yeah, the the political climate has changed quite a bit from from 2014, pre Donald Trump, pre Stacey Abrams, kind of proving that you could mm-hmm. run as a progressive Democrat in Georgia and almost win. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. And and another kind of fascinating dynamic in all of this because now we have two open Senate race or two two ongoing Senate races at the same time in, in Georgia. And at the beginning, I sort of figured we'd see more movement from perhaps Democrats running, you know, challenging Purdue going over into the Isaacson race because you're dealing with an open seat. There's not an incumbent who, you know, Purdue has this vast fundraising network that we've talked about before, his close ties mm-hmm. to the president, all these donors everywhere. You know, part of me figured we'd see some folks move to the open race because then maybe you can get a leg up. You've already been campaigning a little bit. Um, but but you have folks saying, no, 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 we're going to stay. You know, I talked to Teresa Tomlinson, Sarah Sarah Rexamico and Ted Terry all yesterday. And every single one of them said they were committed to staying in that race. And it, it is interesting kind of seeing the dynamics, you know, Democrats trying to figure out which contest they want to get into because they, they are going to be two very different races. Yeah. And you mentioned Sarah Rexamico. She was the lieutenant gubernatorial nominee. She made public that she was running for the U.S. Senate a day before Johnny Isaacson said he was going to step down from that other seat. So you know, that, would, that would have been a huge political news in its own right that that got fastly overshadowed by by uh, Johnny Isaacson's decision but all three of them within an hour or two of Senator Isaacson's decision said nope we're staying against David Perdue and there's advantages to that Exactly. He's a known he's a known yeah. commodity with a known record. Yeah. You can audit, you know, they, they already have time to kind of build up their argument against Purdue, whereas right now it's an unknown Republican. We don't know who Kemp is going to pick. We don't know. A wild card. Exactly. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see, first of all, if there's any sort of coordination or, or even accidental coordination. Maybe you get one type of Democrat who emerges in the Purdue race and kind of the opposite of that who emerges in the Isaacson race. That'll be really interesting to see. What have you been hearing about with the party, Greg? Yeah, I mean that's so the the party is insisting it's not going to play a um uh, it's not going to try to actively shape this race. It's not going to tell anyone to run or not run. But they ha- they are holding a meeting this week with national operatives from Washington and from the from the Democratic Senate Senatorial Committee campaign committee. Where they sit down potential candidates and say, "Hey, here's what to expect." You know. Whoever runs for Senate to have a viable campaign is going to have to raise $20 million. They're going to have to be able to do this. They're going to have to quit their jobs. They're going to have to, you know, you name it, all the different demands. They want to make sure that, that, that all these potential candidates know what's coming if they're going, if they're going to run um, because it's going to be such a demanding race. And no, they don't want to have a repeat of what happened to Republicans in 2017 during that special election for the 6th District when 18 candidates ran, all but about five of them were were Republicans. So you had about a dozen plus Republicans running and six or seven of those Republicans were actually pretty well funded. So you had Republicans just tearing each other down, attacking each other, diluting the the overall GOP message and almost allowed John Ossoff, one of the only Democrats in the race and the one who quickly consolidated his party support, he almost won it outright because Republicans were so busy clashing with each other. So Democrats don't want to have a glut of candidates in next year's race for Isaacson's seat 
that would jeopardize their chances at winning. And what's so interesting, you mentioned the sixth district, is that we have three current and former candidates and lawmakers who are all being viewed as potential picks uh, for to either be selected by Kemp or to to jump into the race themselves. We've long talked about John Ossoff potentially jumping into the Purdue race. Um, you know, those rumors have been going around for a long time, and and he's been sending signals that he is very interested in in doing that. You've also heard ever since Isaacson retired that if if Kemp wants to go through the the suburban route, as we've been discussing, perhaps he picks a woman. And one of the most qualified Republican women right now is former Congressman woman Karen Handel, um, who who uh, lost in 2018 and and has been running again for the sixth district against Lucy McBath. And then there's McBath, um, who who's viewed as as kind of one of the early favorites, if there is one, to jump into this Isaacson race. Um, you know, she's already built a, a pretty significant war chest since winning in uh, in November and you know has already been able to kind of maneuver and, and pass some gun legislation through the house and and is seen as a very formidable potential candidate yeah and a lot of people I've talked to at least said they're waiting for Lucy Mcbath to decide uh, whether she's going to run to decide on their own some people were, were going to run no matter what some people were not going to run no matter what but many many Democrats who are just eyeing this and watching how this unfolds um, feels that feel that she she would be a formidable candidate and are and are waiting for her to decide and and from all things I'm hearing she is she's seriously considering it she hasn't ruled it out she's not in quite yet for a lot of people this sped up their entire decision making process even if even if potential candidates always wanted to be a US senator the fact that this is happening in an accelerated time frame it, it's going to shape the next decade or so of their, of their lives at the minimum. These are six-year terms. This means running three times, essentially, three different elections in the next two years because you're running in 2021 20, and 22, odds are. So it's a huge, huge commitment um, to a family, to, a per, to, to loved ones, to friends. So there's a lot of unknowns out there, but a lot of ambitious candidates and, and potential candidates are already, already maneuvering, already making their, uh, making their plans known. Yeah, what's so amazing about Lucy McBath, I was thinking about this earlier today, is that a year and a half ago, we didn't know who she was. You know, she was a, a gun control advocate who had been running for a state house seat, um, but, but you know, we she hadn't gotten her name out a ton and all of a sudden made a surprise switch into the sixth district race during qualifying in 2018. And look at her monumental rise since then. You know, she would be such a formidable candidate, a, you know, a, a black woman in, in a suburban district that's been fast changing. You know, flipped the Johnny Isaacson, Newt Gingrich seat with a very powerful story. You know, she lost her son to gun violence and, and has really made a name for herself that way. But, you know, Republicans also think that she has a lot of liabilities, a lot of things that we've seen come out uh, throughout the course of the congressional, the last two congressional races, you know, the, and this is something a lot of these would-be candidates have to think about as they go in. Yeah. And, and you know, not to be lost in all this and, and, and at the AJC, we've We've made very concerted effort to remind folks of the legacy of Senator Isaacson and all that he's done in Senate and over elected over his elected career as one of the first statewide elected Republican officials in Georgia since Reconstruction. He's returning back to the Capitol for the first time since all this this week. Yeah, exactly. So he has been gone since mid-July. That was when he fell down in his new apartment in Washington. He has Parkinson's, which has really limited his mobility in the last couple of years. He usually walks around with a cane, if not a wheelchair, on Capitol Hill. And so he fell down. He broke four ribs and ended up being hospitalized in D.C. and then down in Atlanta, which is kind of what 
set the gears moving toward retirement. He he mentioned, and and just for the first time, we didn't know about this that that as he was being you know, scanned after breaking his four ribs, they found some some uh, cancerous cells on his kidneys, and he underwent surgery about two days before he announced his his retirement. And so, I'm I'm going to be very interested to see how he's received when he comes back on on Capitol Hill this week. He really is seen as a bipartisan favorite on Capitol Hill. He's known as just a real nice guy who's easy to work with, always willing to at least try and find a deal to cut with Democrats. And you saw an outpouring of well wishes from folks in D.C. in a way that you would not see with 98% of other members of Congress. You saw well wishes from Schumer, um, from his buddy Chris Coons from Delaware saying, Johnny Isaacson was my mentor and I love him and I will miss him dearly. Johnny Isaacson has laid out a bunch of priorities for what he wants to achieve in the next three and a half months. Um, he's the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. He has a couple nominees for the VA that he's looking to get through. And he's also in the middle of oversight work for a lot of the major legislation he passed with, with President Trump earlier on in his term. So he's talked about that. He's talked about securing money for the Savannah port. He's talked about making sure that money for Hurricane Michael, helping farmers will actually get into the pockets of farmers. So it's going to be a, a really busy couple of months for him. And it'll be interesting to see if there are any sort of surprises when it comes to legacy items for him. As I mentioned, he's known as this big bipartisan deal maker. Immigration has been one of the issues that's really eluded him over the last couple of years. I don't know if there will be time for a big agreement on that, but there are a lot of deal makers of his caliber that are all starting to retire over the next year. So I, I want I wonder if we'll see them all kind of get together and try and do one last big thing before they all go. Oh, that'd be interesting. Well, tomorrow you'll be covering it all from Washington. We'll be watching for any action in, 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 in Congress. Um, Senator Isaacson's, I guess you could call it his farewell tour. Um, and also, we expect uh, developments in the Senate race to start really heating up starting probably this week. So stay tuned, folks. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. The celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents. Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.